you very much, everyone, for joining us today for this uh, Transform Finance Investor Network webinar on the topic of Opportunity Zones, where we'll be exploring the potential for transformation. We're honored to be joined by Fran Siegel and John Cochrane uh, from the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, uh, and they will be accompanied by Rachel Riley as well to go through some of the technical aspects of the Opportunity Zones, as well as delving into some of the questions that uh, um, many of you have been uh, grappling with as the Opportunity Zone program has been starting to take shape. Uh, my name is Andrea Armeni. I'm the Executive Director of Transform Finance and convener of the Transform Finance Investor Network. A um, couple of very quick uh, updates for the Investor Network members. Uh, those of you that were on the Posigen uh, webinar a few weeks ago, some of you have asked uh, for the opportunity to follow up with uh, uh, with Mike Norton and the current uh, open investment that uh, uh, that Posigen has. Thank you for your interest. I've put the information there. Mike Norton, VP of Finance, mnorton at posigen.com. Um, I also wanted to alert you to the um, Buenvivir Fellowship that is currently opened by our friends at Thousand Currents. You might remember them from the Buenvivir Fund that Transform Finance and other organizations have been uh, involved with really an opportunity to redefine what it means to invest for impact from a very much a community-centered and a co-design perspective. Uh, the fellowship is looking for some mid-career uh, investment professionals that want to um, explore the, um, uh, the Buen Vivir approach to, to finance, so I encourage you to take a look. And lastly, uh, the Solidago Foundation, another one of our members, has been moving forward with the Democratizing Capital East Bay Initiative that is, um, this time uh, domestically, a, an opportunity to have a, a capital pool in the form of a fund with a very strong community governance uh, element by community and social justice organizations in the uh, in East Bay. Uh, they will be soon issuing an RFP for a, uh, for a fund manager. Uh, again, a very exciting opportunity. Stay tuned to hear more about, uh, uh, about that, or if you want to learn generally about the Solidago Foundation uh, work with uh, democratizing capital East Bay. So, very quickly for today, because I know that a friend, John and Rachel, uh, will cover pretty much all the things that we're excited to, to hear about. Um, the reason why we're going to be talking about opportunity zones as they came up under the new tax bill is because, indeed, there seems to be a fair bit of potential there, right? Uh, in what many of us decried as a rather terrible tax bill, could this be a silver lining? There is potential for that, but there are a couple of things that we are still uh, a bit on the fence about and we want to parse out today. One, as always, is this um, geographic approach, right, uh, intrinsic in the very notion of a, uh, of a zone. And as we know from our work to date, uh, just looking at a, a, a geographic approach to impact is generally not enough, right? Where you invest or even what you invest in doesn't tell us anything about the impact that you are having there. Um, and also, uh, just having more capital flowing into communities is not intrinsically a good thing unless we know what that capital is being used for, who benefits, and whatnot. 
The third piece that has come up a lot is this issue of um, additionality, as is often a concern within the impact investing world. Are these really new dollars that will be flowing into these communities, or was it capital that was already uh, planned to be deployed there? Maybe it will be deployed faster, which would, would be a good thing. So these are all some of the things that we'll parse out today. From the standard transform finance uh, approach and analysis, we would look at how the affected communities have been engaged in design, in governance, and ownership, both of the program and of specific investments and uh, opportunity funds under the program. This could be in the design phase, before the opportunity zones were, were launched, in the establishment of which tracks end up uh, qualifying as, uh, um, as opportunity zones, and then during the capital deployment uh, mm -hmm. phase. Um, where does the financial benefit flow? Who benefits financially ultimately from the opportunity zones? Again, is it something that will accrue to the benefit of the communities? Will it be mainly something that uh, benefits the, the investors through the tax provisions that are attached to it? And where would the risk of such a program be, um, be allocated? So nothing particularly new there um, for, for those that are familiar with our way of approaching these, uh, these issues. One thing I will highlight on the, um, on the benefit part was that I was somewhat surprised that uh, Brookings came out with, uh, uh, with a little piece that highlighted the risk of gentrification and displacement, for example, that connects with the uh, with the Opportunity Zones program, right? So, as they said, uh, slightly controversially, right? Would the Opportunity Zones program act as a subsidy for displacement? That's a, a little harsh, perhaps, but definitely something that we want to um, that we want to keep an eye out for. And uh, with that, I will turn it over to Fran Siegel, you know, Impact Investing Rockstar and Executive Director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Uh, how's, that, uh, how's that Ford? Who's joining us with our colleague John Cochrane, uh, who's Senior Associate at the Alliance. Uh, and then they will um, bring in uh, Rachel Riley, who very kindly joined us from the Enterprise Community Loan Fund that has also been at the forefront of um, um, analyzing and thinking through how this Opportunity Zones program will work out. Thank you to all of you for joining us today, and thank you to our listeners. And Fran, I will turn it over to you. Very excited to hear from you. Thank you. Andrea, thanks to you and Transform Finance for creating this opportunity for us to speak about Opportunity Zones today, which is our topic. Uh, you talked a little bit earlier about uh, the very tough tax bill of uh, 2017, and we look at uh, opportunity zones potentially as a small silver lining. Um, it's worth noting that the opportunity zones uh, was not uh, subject to heated debate or high profile negotiation uh, during passage. Uh, for reasons that we'll talk about in a, a little bit, uh, the program comes with a fairly low projected cost to the taxpayer, and we'll explain why. Um, and yet we feel that it could be a potential source of significant new flows of capital to the communities that we care about. So I'm Fran Siegel, Executive Director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Uh, as Andrea said, with me today is my colleague at the Alliance, John Cochran, who's Senior Associate, and Rachel Riley Carroll, Director of Impact Investing at Enterprise Community Investing. Um, the Alliance is uh, an impact investing field-building organization. Uh, we have a, a long-term vision of uh, creating a, a, a 
to use your uh, to use your uh, uh, organization title name, Transform Finance, by placing measurable social and environmental impact at the center of all investment decision making. Um, we have again this three pillar strategy. The first is really focused on policy, so creating an enabling policy environment for impact investing, particularly in Washington. Our second pillar is working with investors to catalyze the flow of capital for impact. We work with foundations, donor advised funds, and other institutional investors um, around capital flows. And finally, we support efforts to build uh, the movement around impact investing globally. Enterprise Community Partners, as many of you will know, is a national CDFI. They're active directly and through affiliates in low-income communities across the country. And they also bring a unique skill set around research data and public policy, and we'll hear from Rachel in a moment. Um, Enterprise has been um, very active in organizing CDFIs and community stakeholders to understand and implement opportunity zones effectively. So we have uh, an agenda today uh, that, that um, uh, Andrea uh, laid out, but uh, just to, to refresh, um, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about some of the foundational research done by the Economic Innovation Group, the nonpartisan policy shop that created uh, the Investing in Opportunity Act, which became the Opportunity Zone and the Tax Bill. Um, then we'll walk through the structure of the new law, its goals and implications, and then we'll highlight some of the key opportunities and concerns uh, which for impact investors and also social justice advocates such as yourselves. Uh, finally, we'll turn to questions, and here we really want to emphasize that this will be um, a dialogue. Um, and if there's one takeaway that we want you to keep in mind is that this uh, Opportunity Zone benefit really is in a state of becoming. Uh, there's a lot of work to do to shape and implement this law, and uh, we have a chance as advocates for social justice to push it in a direction that really benefits uh, underinvested, underinvested and disenfranchised communities. So we welcome your questions, comments, concerns, and feedback. There's a chat function that Andrea will be monitoring, and uh, we'll be happy to um, address questions and comments in a moment. So to understand why this benefit was created, we need to go back to the immediate aftermath of the 2008 uh, financial crisis. Uh, through the country as a whole, um, though, though the country as a whole has recovered at a macro level, there are many communities that are still suffering. Uh, there will be, a, and that was really the starting point for EIG's work, Economic Innovation Group's work, um, particularly around a, just something called a distressed community index, where they tried to quantify uh, this uh, uh, gap in the recovery. Uh, the Distressed uh, Community Index uses seven indicators to assess the health of local economies measured at the zip code level. And you can see the analysis and this map uh, presented here. Uh, the indicators cover a broad range of metrics, including education, housing, employment, poverty, and the rate of new business establishment. And using these metrics, EIG identified distressed communities, which are currently home to one in six Americans, about 52 million folks. These zip codes, have, zip codes have poverty nearly twice the national average. These zip codes also have continued to lose jobs between 2011 and 2015. And as you can see from the map, many of them are clustered in historically disadvantaged and underinvested regions. Meanwhile, zip codes at the other end of the spectrum have experienced prosperity, particularly along the coastal corridors, contributing to um, 
uh, decreased economic and geographic mobility. This slide demonstrates how disconnected these places are from, national, from the national community. More than half of the country's distressed zip codes have fewer jobs and places of business in 2015 than they did in 2000. While employment has grown robustly in the most prosperous areas, you see the, dark, the stark decline in distressed areas. Similarly, you see the disparate rates of new business formation. If you're familiar with the statistics on small business finance and venture capital, this won't be surprising. We know that 75% of venture capital goes to three states, Massachusetts, New York, and California. And we also know that substantially all venture capital goes to white male founders. So the research from EIG has particularly honed in on the waning rates of new business formation. We've experienced historically low rates of entrepreneurship throughout the recovery. And this is all the more pronounced in distressed communities, which, as we said, have continued to lose businesses. This is concerning from a number of perspectives. Research from Kaufman Foundation and others indicate that all net new jobs since 1960 have come from new businesses. So we know that large firms uh, employ many. Um, and uh, of course, they often do so at the cost of driving others out of business. We also know that large firms can create a lot of jobs, but they can also out, um, downsize, automate, and outsource jobs regularly. Further, waning entrepreneurship goes hand in hand with the concentration of corporate power. Entrepreneurship is a pathway to economic independence for millions, and it's the, that is the kind of seat of the American dream. But increasingly, it's not an option in these distressed communities. And again, to reiterate, we are disproportionately talking about historically disadvantaged communities. Communities of color, for instance, are three times as likely to fall into this category um, of distress. So it's really with this uh, data context uh, that the Economic Innovation Group uh, wrote the legislation to create opportunity zones. The Opportunity Zones program was established by Congress again in the 2017 tax bill to spur long-term private sector investment in low-income communities nationwide. It was introduced by Senators Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, and uh, Senator Scott, Republican of South Carolina, and they gathered over 90 co-sponsors in the House and Senate with wide-ranging ideologies represented. The program off offers a straightforward way for to, to, re, to reinvest capital gains into distressed communities through opportunity funds, which we'll talk about in a moment, in exchange for a graduated series of incentives tied to long-term holdings. At the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, about a year ago, uh, we met the folks at EIG and we quickly saw this bipartisan effort as an opportunity, and we began convening a range of folks from impact investors uh, to asset managers and policymakers to understand that this kind of capital gains incentive could be a useful tool in flowing capital to the communities that we care about. We wanted to understand both the challenges and opportunities of deploying this capital. This program is the first new national community investment program in 15 years since New Markets Tax Credit, and it has the potential to be one of the largest economic development programs in the U.S. Because of the way it's designed, unlike a tax credit program that has caps, there's no limit to the amount of capital that could flow into opportunity zones. 
And the benefit is meant to be really flexible with the ability to match up with other uh, existing incentives, programs, and initiatives at the federal, regional, and local level. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. So I'd like to share um, the next slide and pass the baton to Rachel um, uh, at Enterprise to talk about what opportunity zones really are, the opportunity zone designation process, and the work and tools that Enterprise uh, has, uh, has been contributing to raise awareness of the benefit. And after that, John uh, Cochran will talk a little bit about the benefit itself. So over to you, Rachel. Term through uh, the Opportunity Zones Tax Benefit, which refers to uh, census tracts, which will, over the next 10 years, be eligible to receive capital through Opportunity Funds. And the basis of Opportunity Zones, uh, these census tracts, the eligibility really is uh, analogous to the New Market Tax Credit Qualified Census Tract. So for folks that are familiar with that, it's Section 45DE uh, in the IRS code. So if, if people wanted to follow up with that um, actual definition of what a low-income community is for the purposes of, of this program. Um, but then there was an additional uh, factor associated with that where uh, not all of the opportunity zones needed to necessarily be low-income communities. Some could actually qualify to be opportunity zones just based on adjacency uh, or contiguity was the actual term. So that means that if you, uh, if a census tract was adjacent or contiguous to a low-income census tract that was designated as an opportunity zone, that census tract would also qualify to be nominated or designated as an opportunity zone. So there's a lot, um, there's a lot there. And so for folks that want to dig in, uh, Enterprise has done um, a lot of research and analysis on uh, breaking down what that actually means. And we've created a resource center on our website. Uh, the easy handle is opportunitiezonesinfo.org, where our data management team has done a great job of just sort of in layman's terms breaking down um, how to best understand what qualifies and what doesn't as a potential opportunity zone. And so the process that governors have been tasked with over the past 90 days uh, since enactment of Opportunity Zones, the actual tax benefit uh, that was passed with tax reform, uh, is moving forward with nominating uh, these, these zones. And so of all of the eligible Opportunity Zones, so all of the eligible census tracts that could be designated as Opportunity Zones, governors were asked to uh, pick up to 25% of those. And that was really meant to concentrate resources. So instead of having this diffused effect of saying all uh, census tracts that meet this threshold of being a QCT or eligible based on contiguity um, could receive capital, what uh, the Crafters Economic Innovation Group and others uh, thought was a best practice based on prior uh, attempts at, at trying to do place-based investing um, and, and understanding what works and what hasn't is to really concentrate capital in, uh, in specific areas. And so by limiting the number of census tracts that could be eligible to receive this investment, uh, to 25% of the total uh, eligible in any state, 
um, that's how that math sort of ended up working out. So, so now we're at this point where on March 21st, all governors had to meet a deadline if they wanted to, uh, to be eligible, if they wanted their state to be eligible to receive capital incentive through opportunity zones over the next 10 years. And that deadline uh, on March 21st was to either submit your nominations for those opportunity zones, so basically your list of census tracts that you wanted Treasury to sign off on and say, yes, these are qualified census tracts for the purpose of opportunity zones, um, or uh, submit an extension request for 30 days, by which time uh, on April 20th, you would have to then submit those census tracts. So, um, you know, in early January, when Enterprise saw this very rapid uh, timeline approaching and, and this clock starting to tick right after enactment, um, we knew that a lot of states were gonna grapple with having the capacity to actually turn around uh, a thoughtful process of public engagement, but also a um, have sort of that, that public input and a robust uh, set of census tracts that would be primed over the next decade to really absorb this capital and maximize the benefit of the equity capital that would be flowing through opportunity funds potentially over the next 10 years. And so the way we saw it was that the next, you know, three months really would dictate uh, the success of Opportunity Zones over the next 10 years. And so we um, used our data platform, which is called Opportunity 360, um, which we had invested in over the past um, couple of years as really our way of understanding as an organization how our investments were impacting communities and to really help us measure and mark um, the work that we're doing because we are um, uh, enterprise community partners for the past three decades has made community investments throughout the nation and part of our, um, our theory of change is that we need to be benchmarking, measuring, monitoring those investments so that we can, you know, understand what that impact is, uh, talk about best practices and then turn that into public policy. So, um, so Opportunity 360 was really meant for that purpose, to understand that and engage investors in that work. So go beyond just investing, but really create change through investment dollars. Um, but we saw an immediate use uh, in creating this Opportunity Zone eligibility tool by layering on um, some of this data, which we think would be helpful for both states and stakeholders as they tried to understand you know, first and foremost, uh, during this 90-day period, make heads and tails of which census tracts would be eligible. Uh, so that's the first layer which we have on uh, the Opportunity Zones mapping tool. And then just understanding uh, that the equity capital being made available through Opportunity Funds in and of itself would not move the dial in, in these communities that really we needed mutually reinforcing uh, capital programs, so subsidies, uh, low-cost debt programs um, to be twinned with the equity coming through opportunity funds 
um, through the typical uh, community development system that, that we have today. And that opportunity fund capital would really be a, um, a great enhancement of the work and the capital that we have, the resources that we have already, um, and, and plug an equity gap. And so what we ended up doing was creating these toggles and these filters to say to states, as you are assessing which census tracts you may want to nominate for opportunity zones, here are some other overlays, for example, where choice neighborhoods are being included. So by saying that, we're saying, here's where other public dollars are going. And so here's where capital may be absorbed. Here's where you may be able to maximize benefit. Similarly, here's where another toggle would be new market tax credit investments. So here's where we know uh, equity capital can make a difference in communities. And um, similarly, we have a number of um, different uh, geographic data, demographic data, socioeconomic information that just may be of interest to folks. And then all of that is also overlaid on top of our Opportunity 360 toggles that talks about housing stability and economic and social mobility. So all that to say, we created this tool to help people be really thoughtful about this decision-making process in order to, um, to help uh, ensure that the capital that hits the ground once it's deployed is, to the point made earlier, going to move the dial on additionality and not just go to activities that would otherwise occur. Thank you so much, Rachel. Let's bring it back to Fran. Okay. Um, here I am talking, uh, thanking Rachel. So, Rachel, thank you. And our understanding from uh, the Treasury Department is that all 50 states plus the territories have either uh, requested the 30-day extension or have already designated their zones. Um, it wasn't that long ago that we were concerned that uh, all 50 states and territories would not uh, even submit uh, 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 requests for designation. So that's quite exciting. Um, excellent. So I am going to hand it over to my colleague, John Cochran, to talk a little bit about more about the Opportunity Zone Benefit and Opportunity Fund. So John, over to you. Thank you, Fran. Uh, and uh, thank you, Andrea, for uh, having us today and all of you for joining us. Uh, so wanted to go ahead and give an overview of how the Opportunity Zone Benefit works, what it means for taxpayers and how it incentivizes long-term investment into low-income communities. Uh, so the first thing to know about the benefit is that it's structured, the, the first benefit that comes to the taxpayer is a temporary deferral of capital gains. So the taxpayers today have the opportunity to elect to defer uh, capital gains tax when they realize a gain. Something important, to, and they uh, get that deferral through 2026 uh, or until they uh, sell their subsequent reinvestment into an opportunity fund. Something important to note about this is that they actually have um, 180 days to make the reinvestment from the capital gains that they have realized into an opportunity fund. Uh, so they have the opportunity to sell as the market conditions dictate, and then look to see if there's an investable opportunity, an opportunity fund that looks attractive, 
uh, and go ahead and make that investment, make the election to defer the, the gains tax. This gives a little bit more flexibility to the investor, a little less friction uh, than we see in some of the other gains deferral uh, incentives that have been put in place in the past. The next benefit that they are eligible to receive is a reduction in the original gains that uh, they would have to pay. So there's a five and seven year step up in the, tax, the cost basis of that uh, deferred gain. So they go in with a cost basis of zero uh, but after five years of being invested in an opportunity fund, uh, they get a 10% step up in the basis. So a $90 or $100 gain gets treated as a $90 gain once they finally have to pay that tax bill. Uh, and then after seven years, that goes up again to 15%. Uh, so down to $85 on an initial $100 gain. But the largest benefit that accrues is a permanent exclusion on gains after 10 years of being invested within an opportunity fund. Uh, so you can see clearly that the incentive is designed such that it's really easy to enter the fund. You've got the option to you know, find an opportunity that makes sense for you as an investor, but the rewards come from staying in for the long term. There's also not a significant penalty uh, if you change your mind because there's not a need to claw back tax credits. So again, it really was designed to be this frictionless vehicle that an investor could come into, uh, try to put their money to work in these low-income opportunity zones uh, and, and accrue the benefits only if they actually are able to maintain that investment for the long term and, and provide the kind of patient capital that we don't always see in these communities. So as I said, uh, this has to go into an opportunity fund. So the next question is, what does an opportunity fund look like? Uh, and the statute really lays out some pretty simple requirements on, on what it actually means to be an opportunity fund. Basically, an opportunity fund has to exist as a legal entity, an LLC or a partnership, uh, and it has to have as its mission to invest in opportunity zones and opportunity zone business property. Uh, beyond that, it has to maintain 90% or more of the assets within qualified opportunity zone business property, uh, which we'll talk about in just a minute here. Uh, but that's it. Uh, and so it, it's really meant to, again, be flexible, allow uh, investors and fund managers, potential fund sponsors to think about, you know, what makes the most sense for where they're trying to invest for the projects they're trying to support. Right now, there's an open public comment period with the IRS uh, to talk about the certification process. Uh, we have heard most recently that there might be a revenue pro uh, procedure coming out shortly, uh, shortly by government standards, but that could be a matter of months, um, outlining what fund sponsors have to do to get uh, certified as an opportunity fund. We don't expect that this is going to be much more than the statutory requirements that I just laid out. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it should be a fairly straightforward process, but we're eager to see what uh, Treasury comes out with and what the IRS comes out with uh, and, and go from there. Uh, we expect that a number of groups are going to be interested and able to establish funds and, and serve as fund sponsors, and we're seeing this already in terms of the kinds of folks who are coming out and asking questions about what it will take to set one of these up in their community. Uh, the funds could be single entity funds meant to invest in a single project. They could be geographically or sector or outcome targeted. Um, 
And while the fund itself couldn't be a nonprofit, we expect that it's entirely possible nonprofits could again serve as the sponsor of one and try to attract uh, this kind of investment capital to, to the charitable causes that they're working on. Uh, and lastly, I just wanted to make a note about mixed funds because this has come up from time to time. So opportunity funds can definitely take in other sources of capital besides this appreciated gain. Uh, they could take capital from foundations that obviously don't pay capital gains. Uh, if an investor is, is selling an appreciated asset, they could absolutely invest the principal of that asset as well. Uh, but anything that isn't a capital gain being rolled over into the opportunity fund is going to be treated as a separate investment. Uh, and there's no additional benefit to investing other types of capital into an opportunity fund. It's really targeted towards just these appreciated gains, uh, but that's still a sizable pool of capital. I think the EIG number is something like $6 trillion in uh, appreciated capital gains sitting on the market right now. So that's a, a ton of money that could still come in uh, and, and be incented into these kinds of funds. So the next question uh, that we would turn to is what do these opportunity funds actually invest in? Uh, and the, the short answer that doesn't tell you much is qualified opportunities on business property. Uh, and that can be uh, stock in a qualified opportunity zone business. It can be an interest in a partnership. Or it can be the actual tangible property itself that exists in a qualified opportunity zone and is used for uh, active business inside the opportunity zone. Uh, there's an important note that uh, this is really meant to incentivize new business formation. You know, that was one of the underlying uh, uh, macro trends that Fran pointed out at the start that EIG really honed in on. And so if the uh, property is being acquired, uh, has already been an active business, uh, there's a requirement or, or was an existing piece of real estate, for instance, there's a requirement that the uh, property must be substantially improved within 30 months in order to qualify. Uh, and the substantial improvement test is actually fairly a fairly high bar. Uh, it's a 100% increase in basis over the course of 30 months. Uh, what a qualified opportunity zone business is uh, draws directly from the statutory language on empowerment zones. Uh, so uh, qualified in empowerment zones, we had qualified business entities here. We have the qualified opportunity zone businesses. Uh, but they must derive most of their revenue from active conduct of business within the zone. Uh, to the extent that there's intangible property associated with the business, uh, it's got to be something that's used for that active conduct of business. So we're, we're not talking about you know uh, setting up office for a patent troll that has a bunch of intangible property that's not actually doing work in the opportunity zone. Uh, and then the assets of the business basically can't be financial assets. Less than 5% can be non-qualified financial property. Uh, so we're, we're really talking about uh, startups, Main Street businesses, real estate, manufacturing, uh, entrepreneurship incubators and accelerators, co-working spaces, um, things that are, are actually active businesses in the community that will hopefully create jobs in the community, hopefully create good jobs in the community, um, and, and will stay located in the community for some time. There are provisions if a, a business stops being an, a qualified business, you know, 
in, in a good case, it'll be because it has grown successfully, grown too large for the opportunity zone. And then there's a, an off-ramp period that the opportunity fund can take advantage of uh, to, to be able to transition out of that investment in a quarterly manner. And the last thing I'll point out is that the statute also carries over uh, prohibitions on SIM businesses from the new markets program. Uh, so here we're talking about gaming, liquor stores, uh, it also prohibits the use for golf courses uh, and, and things of that nature. So again, it, it is trying to give a lot of flexibility both to the investor, to the fund, and to the business owner, uh, but there are some guardrails in terms of uh, what types of businesses it's ultimately going to support. I think now I'm handing it back to Brent. And one quick question before you hand it back, John. Yeah. I'm mindful that we'll keep questions for uh, for the end. But I remember you and I had touched on the on the issue of uh, of employee ownership conversions, and I was wondering if you all have uh, looked into that anymore. Uh, many of the members and other participants on the call are looking at um, conversions to employee ownership as uh, as exit strategies. Um, can you touch on that very quickly because of that original issue stock qualification? Right. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for pointing that out. And so it does say, uh, you know, in the statute that um, it, if we're talking about stock in a business, it should be original issue, so for cash. And so one of the things we're looking at is whether um, within that requirement there's still a way that you could structure deals, structure opportunity funds in such a way that they do provide financing for employee ownership conversions or even just other ways to keep local businesses locally owned. Uh, so we know that there's a, a wave of sort of boomers and others who are preparing to retire and potentially exit their businesses and thinking about how they'll be able to leave, the, leave their businesses in the hands of uh, either their employees or the, at least the community. Um, we do think there's probably some, there, there may be a way forward for this. Uh, it's going to take work with the, the structuring attorneys, the folks who are much higher paid and smarter and probably better looking than me. Uh, but uh, we we're hopeful to figuring that out. It might be something that gets addressed through regulation as well. Uh, so the next step after the IRS looks at just simple fund certification is going to be these rules around the kinds of qualifying business property. And so we want to try to get in their hands sort of use cases of what would be really powerful ways to, to use this kind of capital that's targeted at its communities. Uh, and I think that would be one that we want to try to get in front of the regulators sooner rather than later so that we can figure out how it can fit within the structure. Terrific. Thank you so much, John, for addressing that. Fran, back to you. Thank you. John, thank you for laying that out. I just want to point out a, a couple of um, aspects to make them very clear to this group before we go to questions. The first is that um, what, can, what is rolled into opportunity funds is the capital gains portion. Uh, so you can, if you have a run-up in a, you know, any kind of appreciated asset, let's say in the public markets, um, you can harvest the gain, keep the cost basis, and roll the capital, just the capital gains portion, um, into an opportunity fund. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about kind of the, the tax holiday and when taxes are due, but that seems like a really important piece. And the second, um, and, and Rachel touched on it, is that the capital deployed from opportunity funds needs to be equity. 
and um, it's something that we have been thinking a lot about, uh, trying to understand if there may be kind of quasi-equity options um, uh, that c might be better suited for uh, companies that operate in opportunity zones. So it's just something that's in a state of becoming. There's a lot of um, product innovation that can be done. John mentioned that there are opportunities to submit use cases to treasury departments. So uh, there's, there's a lot more discussion and opportun uh, opportunity for innovation that we see. But this equity piece is something that I wanted to bring to the fore. Um, so Rachel, I'd love to ask you um, a question. You talked about this um, twinning idea of having opportunity zone capital deployment or opportunity fund capital deployment um, be alongside existing programs. And so wondering if you can talk a little bit about how op the opportunity zone benefit is maybe different from other zone programs that exist, and also how opportunity zones and opportunity funds may thoughtfully interoperate with some of these other programs um, to, to create value in communities. Sure, absolutely. Um, so very early on from, from a very meta perspective, I think the community development, community investment field um, had, to, had to get comfortable with the fact that this is not a program, it's a benefit. So a lot of the reporting requirements, uh, a lot of the federal and state oversight where, that we are typically used to seeing around um, you know, impact measurement or outcomes or um, assignment of properties. So like you would see in the low income housing tax credit program or the new market tax credit program, um, especially also around, you know, certification of CDEs and, and how you really go about um, participating in those programs and deploying capital into communities and measuring and benchmarking success. Um, we're not, going to see that necessarily with opportunity zones. Um, right now at the federal level, uh, the, the legislation is very pithy. That was, uh, it's very skeletal. So, and, and it was meant to be market responsive. It was meant to be um, flexible. And so that's why we're seeing very little, uh, quote unquote, meat on the bones at the federal level. Um, this is something that's going to be going to sit with IRS because it is a tax benefit. It is not a program that's gonna be run through the CDFI fund, which is something that even though the CDFI fund is on point for some things like right now, they have a publicly facing uh, uh, page for opportunities and nominations. Once that's done, there's not really a role for CDFI fund, which is our understanding right now. And so um, the way that this, this is this is completely different. This is an innovation. This is new. This uh, taps a different set of capital, and so I think that that is really important to note as investors and practitioners that are used to working and supporting distressed communities. Thinks about think about how uh, equity funding and equity capital will will hit the. the people in the places that that we are used to supporting. Um, and then to your other question around how how we think that this capital and opportunity zones could ultimately twin with those programs that we're used to working with, 
um, we've done some some early modeling, and we do think that it will twin with the housing credit. We think it will twin with the new market tax credit. Um, and you know, we think that it'll it'll relieve some pressure off of off of some of the equity needs, especially you know programs. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. I don't know if anyone else can hear that. Um, so programs that uh, where equity may be going to uh, to uh, activities that, for example, uh, I know that the new market tax credit. Um, has funded activities in the past that maybe opportunity fund equity can now be used for and new market tax credit equity could be used in different ways. And so I think that it, it, it serves as a new resource that we can be creative and thoughtful about. Um, but that being said, there's opportunity zones, equity capital is going to be used for a lot of other things that um, is gonna look very different and the types of activities that the community development sector is used to um, to funding. Mm -hmm. Rachel, thank you um, for that. We've been hearing a little bit from some of the banks that benefit from CRA credits, um, uh, kind of opining on the interoperability of CRA with opportunity zones. Um, we know that uh, the Volca rule uh, prevents investment in equity funds. Although there are some large banks certainly that enact the public welfare exemption, uh, notably Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Um, Rachel, what have you been hearing uh, at all about CRA and how that may come into play or not around opportunity zones? Yeah, I think it is um, still very much in question. Um, I, I know it is something that that the regulators are still opining and contemplating. Um, it's something that the banks are are uh, curious about as our community development practitioners. Um, you know, I think the one thing to be mindful of is just the flexible nature of the types of activities that can be financed through opportunity zones. And so, um, whereas it may be very easy to, I wouldn't want to take, if I was a regulator, a broad approach and say opportunity funds as a vehicle uh, because of the nature of their investing into distressed communities would automatically qualify as a CRA uh, credit for the investment test because I think that that then opens up uh, the possibility for an investment into, say, a payday lender. And so, because that is an eligible activity, um, it's not prohibited as a thin business necessarily. And so, you know, that's a subjective call as to whether um, investments into payday lenders in distressed communities should be viewed as um, something that's a benefit to low-income communities. Um, mm -hmm. Again, subjective, up to the banks, but these are the types of conversations that are happening right now. So, Rachel, if we can talk just a moment more about um, Enterprise's approach. Uh, you've done a lot of work around um, data and tools and policy to kind of benefit the public good. But when you look at this from an investor perspective, an asset manager, both, you know, you run a CDFI, uh, you also run uh, a lot of big, big funds focused on affordable housing. Um, 
how do you think opportunity, how do you, or are you viewing opportunity zones as a, an opportunity for enterprise, both to kind of layer this capital in your existing business lines, but also how are you thinking about it uh, in terms of impact? Yeah, so Enterprise will absolutely um, create opportunity funds. We have structured and managed funds uh, for the past three decades, and we're already starting that internal work. And um, we're hoping that the funds that we create will leverage uh, the experience we have, but then also uh, because there is that lack of reporting uh, required on the federal level, we're hoping that we will be able to incorporate that into the funds that, that we create and then to be able to use that as a best practice and show how capital can meaningfully be moved into these communities through this tax benefit. But, um, you know, from an investor standpoint, uh, I feel like there's going to be a subsect of investors that are going to be purely motivated by the tax benefit. And so, um, all things being held equal, uh, even though this is an investment into a distressed community, it is going to be the tax benefit that they seek, and so they're going to be making decisions purely based on uh, on risk and return. And so, um, what I think the real challenge for for states and localities uh, once these zones are designated is coming up with that playbook and that menu of options for figuring out you know, if I have local priorities, and part of this is part of the zone designation, but now that they have these zones, if, I, if I'm a state and I have these local priorities, what additional incentives can I be layering on top of, um, of the Opportunity Fund's national incentive to make that money move into my communities in the way that is going to um, be aligned with with our local priorities and achieve the social outcomes that I want to see. So we're seeing a lot of states think about their uh, state level treatment of capital gains um, taxes and see and they're trying to understand if they could perhaps leverage that to um, to maybe waive state level capital gains uh, in order to incent investments into funds that are doing say affordable housing as opposed to uh, luxury hotels because, again, all things being held equal, investors in both of those funds will receive the same tax benefit, um, and they're just making decisions around risk and return. Great. Thank you. Um, John, could I ask you another question? Um, and, and Rachel touched on it around the predominance of affordable housing. Um, around new markets tax credits today. And we've been a part of a Novogratic working group um, looking at the Opportunity Zone benefit and wondering um, your thoughts around this kind of inevitable, what seems to be a somewhat inevitable undertow toward real estate for mm -hmm. capital deployment of, uh, from Opportunity Funds. Sure, happy to. And yeah, I think it's an important question because as we said at the start, the really motivating uh, factor behind uh, getting this benefit in place was trying to unlock new capital for small businesses and push back on this decline in small business formation. And so there's a couple of things at play. The first being that uh, 
whenever you're talking about a place-based investment, real estate is a natural place to look, right? Real estate doesn't move. It's always going to be within the zone, and it's usually going to be around for at least 10 years. Businesses often fail. Businesses often move. Businesses grow larger than the zones, where, than the census tract where they were founded. And so there's just a natural, as you're trying to think out 10 years into the future, looking into your crystal ball, what's going to be good for this kind of investment, real estate looks attractive. Then there's some quirks within how the statute was actually designed, and we can get into the fact that this was passed very quickly in a tax bill that was itself passed very quickly. Um, but there's going to need to be uh, either technical corrections or regulatory fixes to understand, you know, how does uh, an existing business take advantage of this? Are they able to segregate off sort of new business uh, that they're creating? So if uh, there's an existing manufacturing plant that wants to increase, open another plant inside an opportunity zone, are they going to have the option to sort of softly segregate out that business uh, from, from the existing business and attract that capital, create the kind of business activity that the law was really intended to create? Unclear, um, and so that sits with the regulators. And so there's there's other questions like uh, built into this. Another big one is um, how will uh, reinvestment of funds uh, within the opportunity fund itself be treated? So the structure of it, having everyone go through the funds, uh, was created in part as a compliance mechanism. So that's where the IRS actually does the testing to make sure that the capital is flowing to opportunity zones. Opportunity funds have to test themselves every two years, or twice, a, twice every year, excuse me. If they're out of compliance, they pay a tax penalty for being out of compliance. It, it's one central point for the IRS to look at from a compliance perspective. But it was also meant to mirror sort of venture capital funds and other sort of private investment vehicles with an idea being that you know, you're invested in a portfolio of businesses and there will be exits from some of those businesses inside 10 years and can the capital recycle into the opportunity zone or another opportunity zone. Right now it looks like uh, that would be difficult to do. Uh, it looks like that would trigger a tax event for the owner of the LLC, the original investor, uh, even if they never actually called on that capital. Um, so that's just one more issue that the regulators are going to have to take a hard look at, or maybe Congress will go back to. We don't know yet. Um, in order to make it a little bit easier for this to work for uh, uh, business investing, and, and again, you know, you can see sort of through the legislative history that this was the intent that Congress had to have this kind of ability to recycle capital. It specifically calls out. Um, being able to offload or off-ramp from businesses that are, are no longer qualifying over the course of five years. It, it gives a pretty generous off-ramp in that way. Uh, but it's hard to see how that will match with the actual tax benefit. Again, all of these are things that you're much less likely to come up against with real estate, where it's much easier to envision putting money into rehabbing an existing apartment building, staying in it for 10 years, and then flipping it at the end of it. Um, so we're hopeful that, you know, based on the interest of the, the original sponsors, based on the interest of the investor community, based on the interest of community stakeholders themselves, uh, that the regulators, Congress will see a way clear to, to enable business investment because that really is the, the gap that this was designed to fill. John, just a 
a, a follow-up question about zones. Um, Andrea flashed up uh, this Brookings um, quote and, and pulled out this phrase, subsidy of displacement. Rachel mentioned contiguous zones. Are there limitations to capital deployment to contiguous zones versus the kind of main opportunity zones in order to try to stem the, the, the tide of capital flowing into places that are already being gentrified? There's not hard limits on the amount of capital that can flow into any given zone, uh, and in part because there's no sort of national reporting on how much capital is flowing into each individual zone. But there is a pretty hard cap on the amount of contiguous zones that there can be. So a state can nominate a, the total number of census tracts that can go into a state's opportunity zones is 25% of the low-income communities. If there are 100 low-income community census tracts, a state can nominate 25 zones, uh, or 25 census tracts, and however many zones they can piece together with those. Of the of those 25 census tracts that uh, they're able to nominate, 5%, uh, so doing my math really quickly, uh, the, the, the two, I think it runs up, two of those census tracts could be contiguous. So it's a small portion of the total amount. Only 5%, your 25% allocation, gets to go into uh, uh, these contiguous zones. So that's the limiting factor there. There's also an income test on the con contiguousness. It uh, has to be, I think, 125% of the median income of the opportunity zone it's attached to. Uh, so it's not like uh, you know, we've seen with EB-5 where like Beverly Hills is able to sort of gerrymander itself into you know actually distressed communities. Um, it, it should be still, you know, a, a lower income community, if not the lowest. But we did see, for example, in the state of California, um, in the, the designation process, going yeah. just straight by, um, by uh, income levels, uh, that uh, several opportunity zones were selected, say, like around Palo Alto, where students, the high concentration of students who are making little to no money, and so it looks like a, a, a low-income uh, community when actuality it's basically Stanford University. And so, um, and on the other hand, you know, we've heard some folks talk about, well, that, gosh, that'd be great if it were an opportunity zone so that we can deploy capital into the next kind of uh, tech, tech startup. And those are companies that are actually very well suited to equity. Yeah. Um, so there are some kind of perverse incentives in a way or perverse selections happening. Yeah, and I mean here I think it's just a great chance to give another shout out to, to Rachel and the entire team at Enterprise and what they did to really try to educate states. I know, uh, Rachel, you probably have the number offhand, but it was a significant number of the actual offices making these selections that Enterprise had the chance to work with and try to work through some of these questions of what should you really be looking at, what kinds of zones uh, stand to benefit and, and should stand to benefit from the program. So really glad that we had Enterprise in the field. There were some others as well, LISC, um, who are all trying to, to make states be really thoughtful about these zone selections. But we always knew not every state would be as thoughtful. Some would be more political. Some would be uh, not give it the due, due consideration. Um, but it's part of the sort of flexible design of the program. Um, yeah. Rachel, 
ahead. Sorry. I, I just want to, first of all, I want to say thank you for that, but also I feel like that the circular uh, discussions that we had with states are so important because uh, now what what we're hearing and, and what is just ringing so true is that, especially for affordable housing practitioners, where uh, we're looking at the housing credit and twinning this with the housing credit and saying, yes, this works as a modeling, from a modeling standpoint, we're also having to say, okay, but we have this affirmatively furthering fair housing mandate that says that uh, we have to invest in quote unquote communities of opportunity, um, which by definition may or may have this uh, mismatch around alignment with distressed communities that are eligible uh, under the definition um, of opportunity zones to be designated as opportunity zones. So this issue around contiguity and census tract contiguity becomes important because then it's like, okay, so we're making these assumptions that we can uh, create affordable housing with this equity capital uh, by twinning it with the housing credit, but we have these, this mandate around um, investing in communities that, um, that uh, aren't necessarily distressed. And so there may be a mismatch on the actual uh, opportunity to, to execute on that. So these are just the, like in real time, the feedback that we're getting from states and, and our policy folks in the field. So Rachel, I wanted to ask you a little bit around about to expand on the state and local incentives that you talked about, given that uh, you know, there aren't um, impact uh, metrics or mandates as part of the program. Uh, there, there originally were, and they were stripped out uh, um, in the in the law that was enacted. So, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about um, if you're aware of particular states that are engaging in um, or, or cities that are in, involved in uh, you know, looking at incentives to try to influence the flow of capital? Um, and also, John, maybe you and I can talk a little bit afterward about almost like the, the, the privatization of impact mandates. Uh, so, you know, regulation versus self-regulation issue. Yeah, I know a number of states are looking at state-sponsored funds, which could be very interesting because uh, fund managers for opportunity funds uh, as John mentioned, the flexibility around who can manage these funds presents a lot of uh, potential. So, for example, uh, Nebraska, I believe, is thinking about creating a state-sponsored opportunity fund that would align with uh, their state-sponsored housing fund and then um, aligning investments around their three major campuses to do workforce housing. Um, so by that very nature, we would have a socially beneficial um, opportunity fund with great outcomes and probably some robust reporting around that. As far as incentives, um, I know that Colorado is looking at their state level treatment of capital gains. And um, I believe that their requirement and their capital gains taxes between uh, at the state level between four and five percent. Um, and if uh, if folks uh, are not paying federal capital gains and they pay state gains, but what Colorado is contemplating is waiving 
that's state capital gains for uh, people investing into opportunity funds. Where I would see enterprise playing a role in the future is because we have a state and local policy presence in Colorado would be to say, you know, number one, I think that that's a great idea, but for what activities? And then trying to really shape a conversation around whether certain activities, um, such as affordable housing, such as, um, you know, it, the employee ownership and ensuring that local businesses remain locally supported and owned, um, that those should be the types of activities that maybe benefit from, from those exemptions. Okay. Um, I realize that we have been very focused in this discussion so far, kind of top-down methods, so federal policy, state policy, local policy, and we know that the concerns of the folks that are affiliated with Transform Finance and Transform Finance itself um, are concerned with community engagement. And so, Andrea, I was wondering if uh, we, I could pass it back to you to kind of frame up the next portion uh, of our discussion around those issues that are of particular interest, interest to your constituency. Thank you, uh, Fran and Rachel and John for this. And I, I think this is the, the perfect framing uh, for us to get a, a bit of a better understanding of the uh, underlying uh, mechanisms and how we have uh, gotten to this point. And in fact, you, you did already address several of the issues around the um, community piece and, um, and the impact measurement and management standards that have been, um, never mind. So one of the things that we had been uh, discussing within our group previously is around the crowding in, crowding out effect of these. And, uh, John was hinting at that when uh, um, when he mentioned the uh, investors that are not subject to capital gains tax and what's going to happen to to them. So I'm wondering if you have seen anything around really a, a shift, say on the part of foundations, uh, if uh, if that's the case, rather tax exempt investors um, away from opportunity zones which could be in a coordinated effort, right? It doesn't have to be a, a bad thing, but it could be that you say, well, those that are subject to capital gains tax, let's go into this zone. Those that are not, let's take advantage of, uh, of another piece. Um, John, have you seen anything along those lines of sort of like a divide and conquer approach? I don't know that we've seen it actually going there. So you're talking about where, say, you're interested in, in investing in a specific community, say, we'll, we'll take a city like Detroit, and a quarter of its low-income areas were designated as zones and the remaining weren't. So a foundation might step up and, and fill the investment needs in the 75% that didn't receive the designation. I don't know that we've seen that yet. We have seen uh, a lot of foundations, community foundations and place-based foundations trying to coordinate the activities uh, within uh, prospective zones and make sure that all the community stakeholders are, are coming together and thinking about how the tool could be used there, as well as putting in place some of the technical assistance, the training for entrepreneurs so that they're prepared to take on this kind of investment capital uh, uh, evaluative capacity so that the, the state and, and the locality actually knows that this is an effective use of, of taxpayer subsidy um, since we're not going to get that from the federal government at this time. Uh, and so that's where we've seen uh, uh, foundations come in and play a role so far. 
And I think we'll continue to see them iterate on that and, and develop some best practices where hopefully we can play a role in, in sharing out um, some success cases. Uh, but uh, I think it's one more place where we're still going to have to explore and design as we go. I would just add on to that that um, the the large foundations that are keen around place-based investing, um, in addition to you know being interested in uh, uh, gathering stakeholders and some of the evaluation and technical assistance work that John mentioned, there's just a, a keen general interest among some of the larger foundations that uh, that that this not become uh, just another benefit for the 1% um, and that uh, we work hard as a, as a movement and as a group uh, and, and the Alliance has certainly been involved with us as an enterprise and John mentioned LISC and Beck Center and Sorensen Impact Center and um, EIG of course principally and many others um, being engaged uh, in a very hands-on way around the Opportunity Zone designations um, input around opportunity fund certification and the ongoing kind of regulatory shaping and legislative shaping so that this program um, becomes as powerful as it can be for the communities that we care about. So there, there's a lot of interest among the large foundations in those regards as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and uh, again, it could be a good thing if uh, if there was a, a coordination around uh, who, who invests in one zone versus another, a different version of the adjacency point. Um, going back quickly uh, and trying to tie here some of our conversations with some of the questions that have been coming in, and thank you to all those that have submitted some questions through the uh, through a chat function. Uh, so we've been focusing on the on the equity piece, which um, uh, equity as in a financial instrument in this case, uh, which by and large is not very conducive to um, to investing in, say, growing businesses in some of the more distressed um, areas, right? Um, so uh, there was a um, one of the questions that came in was around uh, the parallel track of having an opportunity fund and other investors sort of piggybacking alongside it in uh, in some way so that they can offer some alternative deal structures or mezzanine debt type of investments into opportunity zones and whether they can in some way still have an, um, an advantage from it. Um, not a particularly well-framed question on my part, I'm mindful, but you know where I'm, uh, where I'm getting at with that. Mm -hmm. And um, um, well, let's, uh, let's start with that. Yeah, on you know, whether equity really means equity or can it mean also preferred equity in the case of investments into some cooperatives that can't take on common stock? Uh, can it be some sort of alternative deal structure that looks like equity but it's more uh, an in-between type of vehicle? Have, have we gotten to that level of granularity or probably quite not? Well. I would say that you know we've we've talked about common and preferred equity. Um, it's important to note that the biggest benefit around opportunity funds is, as John said, this ten-year hold uh, after which uh, all capital gains in the opportunity fund are waived. Um, we also agree that equity, traditional equity, venture capital style equity may be ill-suited to many types of businesses in opportunity zones. Um, so we've, we've done some uh, uh, 
had a number of discussions around uh, you know, other kinds of alternative structures like revenue royalty uh, that would be uh, in place for a certain period of time after which uh, it would get bought out at some sort of premium at a future, uh, at a future period where that would create the capital gains, typical debt, um, uh, interest is uh, taxed at, at an ordinary income rate, so that doesn't work. Um, so we think that there can be some creativity brought, uh, but at the end of the day, it has to be, uh, they have to be instruments that create actual capital gains uh, to be relevant. Uh, in terms of uh, investing alongside, there are definitely opportunities. In fact, the easiest way we think for CRA uh, banks that deploy CRA credits to uh, participate is a debt facility alongside um, an equity investment with opportunity funds. So we see that there's a lot of opportunity for creativity. That said, um, for opportunity fund investments, there has to be capital gains proper in order to release the full value of the benefit. John, Great. do you have anything else to, have you been hearing about anything else that's particularly creative? Um, I would say just that, you know, there are, yeah, a lot of folks are looking at this. Some of the folks who have been working in um, uh, FinTech and sort of alternative uh, forms of financing are, are trying to get their heads around this and, and what kinds of structures they could say. And one, one other point that's not directly to, to Andre's question, but I think is important to call out because I kind of buried it in my, in my original presentation, is just how perishable this benefit is as written. Uh, and it's something that's actually even called out in the Brookings report that some of these benefits aren't really going to be available to investors after 2019 when you'll no longer be able to hold an investment for seven years before the 2026 date that your, your waiver ends. So there's going to be some pretty immediate opportunities to revisit this public policy and think, is it doing what we want it to do or do we need to change it? Uh, so it really is, and that's another reason why it scores lowly, which, uh, Fran, you referenced at the top. It's estimated to only cost the taxpayers a couple billion dollars in the 10-year window that uh, that Congress looks at, because that's all Congress cares about is the next 10 years, apparently, uh, because the, these benefits sunset. And so if Congress wants to really tout this as a success, they're going to have to extend it. But that's going to be an opportunity to look at whether it's actually doing what we want it to do. So just one more thing to keep in mind that we really are in an experimental phase of whether this can can deliver the outcomes that we're seeking in, in the communities that need it most. Yeah, and I, I would just add I would just add that I think that the early movers are really going to make the market here. And so the more creative uh, that we can be. Uh, early on, I think that we can shape how how this looks. And so that would just be my plug for folks that are considering doing something very uh, socially impactful and purposeful with opportunity zones to to move forward on it because let's get some best practices out there immediately to to model uh, how this moves forward. Thank you for uh, for that. And in fact, you're lining me up for where I wanted to go with uh, um, having a quick conversation here on uh, uh, the role that the investors are part of this community that can uh, um, that can play uh, in uh, in this early stage. 
but first, I want to turn it over quickly to our friend and colleague Oscar Periabello from uh, um, from Next City, uh, who's been part of some of the framing conversations that we've been uh, we've been having. Over to you, Oscar. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, just a couple of quick things I've been jotting down throughout the conversation. Um, there's, there's four of them. Uh, the first thing is when we think about gentrification and whether or not this may or may not fuel it, uh, I'd, I'd also flag that you want to think about it beyond just housing. So, for instance, because this thing focuses a lot on startups, as, as, as Fran mentioned earlier, um, if you're starting up a new healthy food business in a low-income area, are you perhaps putting out putting local bodegas out of business? And perhaps is there a way to bring those business owners on board in some way? Um, you know, do you have maybe you have to create a new entity to be able to satisfy the need, satisfy the needs of the law? But um, if you're starting up new businesses in the low-income area, watch out because guess what? There are already businesses there. Um, another thing to keep in mind is uh, there there is a really interesting tool out there called the market value analysis. It comes from reinvestment funds. And there are about 40 cities that have commissioned these. And it's a thing you can commission every couple of years. So like Baltimore has done, I think, uh, 10 or 11 of these. Uh, Dallas just did its first market value analysis. And what this does is they, they, they do this really fascinating thing where they group census tracts by housing market characteristics, physical, financial, and, and other characteristics. So what you, get, what you can really see is which census tracts or which census blocks really, because it, it's more granular than a census tract, which census blocks are actually surround, are, are really concentrated poverty census blocks where, where it's a census block that's surrounded by other impoverished census blocks, or is it a census block, block that's near or very close to, or right next to a census block that is already gentrifying, that is already going through a transition period. Um, those are two very different situations and you wanna, you wanna be aware of, of where you're going, you know, in addition to, is this a low income, is, is this a qualified census tract? Is this a low-income census tract? Is this a census tract that is surrounded by other low-income census tracts, or is it close to gentrifying census tracts that are going through housing market transition already? And am I either contributing to, or am I sparking a new gentrification wave? Or you know, there, there's a lot more to it. And uh, reinvestment fund can can be very helpful in kind of navigating those maps. Um, another th another thing to flag if it is housing kind of deal you're looking at. Um, there are there's there are new rules at HUD that allow for voucher payments in higher income neighborhoods, higher income census tracts, higher income zip codes, I should say, excuse me, it's zip codes. Voucher payments in zip in higher income zip codes will pay higher than they have traditionally been paying all this time. It's be, so it'll it'll more closely reflect local market conditions. And there are some developers like the National Housing Trust and a few others who have already told me that, um, you know, they were going out and acquiring buildings that were in census tracts that were at risk of, you know, having those the, those buildings flipped into market rate housing. And so they acquired it. There's vouchers in those buildings. And now those buildings are going to get a substantial income increase as a result of this, these new rules from HUD. There are 24 cities where these new rules are mandated and other cities may adopt them. And I, I can tell you more about that. So it, it, I bring that up to say that if you're going to look at using this tool now as a house to, to, to work in housing, um, you may also want to strategically look at, oh my gosh, uh, 
this is Charlotte. Uh, so this this is a city where they're going to be increasing the voucher payments. Let's make sure we we rope in the local housing authority to make sure that um, these projects are uh, going to be able to benefit from that. And maybe that'll make maybe that makes a project more more likely to happen, knowing that you'll you'll have access to a higher voucher payments from Section 8 voucher holders. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is governance has already come up. You know, this whole idea of who's going to decide how these how these funds get used and, and deployed. Uh, I can bring up some examples for you if you'd like. I can I can send you the links to stories we've covered at Next City, where the city of Minneapolis, for instance, has done uh, a really fascinating RFP process where the, the the city's community development agency went out to to a neighborhood first and 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 got got their concerns their priorities and use that to shape the RFP and then they got proposals in and then after they got proposals in they picked out three finalists and then they brought those finalists out for an open house like a trade fair style to to the community um, at, a, at a community center in a, in a park and had residents come by and meet the developers and actually like talk to them about the projects and you know they got get, get a sense of uh, which projects were residents most excited about and these are things you don't have to be afraid of uh, people like to do this. People are doing it in Minneapolis and also Portland, and I'm sure there are other examples out there um, before and after the RFP of a project. Uh, you don't have to kind of just do it once, and hopefully that's all the community feedback you need. Um, it's, it's something that cities are doing, and I would encourage you to find cities who are open to doing that. Um, I can Again, I can provide you some, some reporting to illustrate those examples that I mentioned about uh, pipeline generation and pipeline management and project selection. And yeah, thanks, that's all Thank you so much. And indeed, yeah, it would be great if you could share with uh, with us those uh, materials so we can send them out afterwards to the, to the participants. Uh, and that actually uh, lines up well with the question that we got from uh, from Sonia Guram from the uh, state of Colorado that has already submitted nominations where she is asking uh, what can they do now to support the communities to prepare to attract the investment? Um, so what uh, what would be some of the... Uh, and maybe, Fran, uh, you have seen something along those lines, right? What, what is there that uh, uh, that can be done to make sure that the community is ready, sort of like an investment readiness that is somewhat uh, participatory to the extent possible? Mm -hmm. Great. Can you hear me, Andrea? Okay, great. Um, yeah, so I think that this is a good subject to end on around how folks who are interested on the webinar can uh, stay informed and become engaged. So we'd be happy to put together um, a list of resources uh, where folks can stay apprised of what's happening. Um, Enterprise has an extraordinary amount of materials. Um, uh, the uh, Economic Innovation Group uh, website also um, is, is updated frequently, and the alliances as well. Um, and uh, you know, I, we think that there's still an opportunity for investors to pay, be engaged uh, in those states where opportunity zones haven't been designated yet. So uh, Rachel mentioned earlier that there are a certain number of governors who have asked for a 30-day extension. Um, so there's uh, likely an opportunity to be engaged uh, there. Um, Rachel, do you want to talk a little bit about um, you know, how people can stay apprised uh, 
around the opportunity zone designation process. And then, John, maybe we can give a picture of what's going to happen uh, next uh, around Treasury, regulatory issues. It's, things will happen in stages, and it's very hard to predict how long uh, the phases will, will take. But um, maybe, Rachel, I'll give you a, a chance to speak about that. And if you'll let me uh, jump in, Frank, uh, Frank just to uh, frame a little bit for, for Rachel how we've been uh, looking at this uh, within the Transform Finance Investor Network, looking at the three roles that the, that the investors can, uh, can play. And Rachel, I would love your, your reaction to that and where we should be prioritizing. So one part is uh, on um, Actually, informing the standards that will uh, that will happen. It's a role that we have tried uh, to some extent to play within uh, CRA conversations, SBIC conversations. That it's it, it's good to have a, a community of fairly prominent folks that might make their. Uh, um, their, their expertise available as to what really matters on uh, uh, on those designations and on the standards. The second, more obvious one, again to pick on where to invest carefully. And uh, as always, not just a, a matter from the way we look at it. I don't know if an enterprise look at it uh, differently, right? It's not just where is the highest need, but really the highest potential for that delta, right? Where there is capital absor absorption capacity at a community level and some of the other elements present from political organizing on down. Um, as some of the place-based investors look at it uh, so that this can really be uh, transformative, right? You're not looking at capitalizing one enterprise or one project at a time, but you're looking at that holistic effect that can, uh, that can happen there. So again, not the most need, but the highest uh, delta combined to echo what Oscar was saying with a low or manageable risk of negative impact on uh, uh, on that community so that's the second role that we saw the the investment role and and the third if we can be that blunt really um, using the sub boxes and access that many of the investors have to governors or otherwise to um, let's say express their views on uh, uh, what might be some of the standards especially uh, as you were looking at that capital gains at the state level uh, and, uh, and what can be done there as a way of imposing some standards, uh, there are not a race to the bottom um, that complements the federal ones. So uh, I'll just put it out there as the approach, but I uh, would love it yeah, if you can address uh, Fran's question on uh, um, how can investors play a role, what would be the most uh, meaningful role for them to play? Can you hear me? Yeah, thanks. I think that there's going to be, you know, both an immediate uh, need and for engagement, but then also a long-term uh, play, uh, especially around the policies that were, which you were just referring to. So, for example, to Oscar's point around displacement of local businesses, one of the policy recommendations that we'll probably be discussing at Enterprise is um, rate of first refusal for uh, small businesses that may be receiving or could be receiving opportunity fund equity investments um, in neighborhoods that are gentrifying so that they could purchase their building if their landlord uh, is, uh, is about to move or sell that building. So in D.C., it's called the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act. It only refers or applies to residents of um, 
of rental, and so so it's it's only for uh, housing. But can we take that best practice, apply it to small businesses, and then tailor it uh, to opportunity funds and share it as a best practice nationally? So. So I think that that's something that investors could potentially get behind to address something that, you know, Oscar very specifically mentioned. Um, as far as where, you know, Oscar also mentioned the MBA enterprise has this very robust state mapping tool, which I really uh, hope folks utilize and leverage. It's at opportunitiesinfo.org. Um, it's been accessed over 23,000 times over the past five weeks, so folks are really uh, engaged with it, and the feedback's been great. Um, but uh, what I would also say to that is that the St. Louis Fed uh, has also created uh, an Opportunity Zones mapping tool, which they released yesterday. Uh, Mike Eggleston and team over there uh, overlaid some information around potential gentrification and displacement that the Urban Institute came out with recently, and together um, that tool could be really useful for investors to understand which neighborhoods uh, are at risk for gentrification, displacement, vis-a-vis -vis potential opportunity zone uh, nomination and selection. So that could be another useful tool. And then finally, um, I'm really struggling as someone who goes out and raises capital ultimately at the end of the day to understand uh, appetite for risk and return and, and what investors that, you know, we have our tried and true impact investors and investors that are always going to show up in a meaningful way around, um, you know, concessionary returns or maybe taking a little bit more risk um, because they understand it's, it's perhaps just perceived risk by the market, but they, they know that CDFIs and others understand what they're underwriting and what they're doing. Um, but for those other investors that are at the margins and they're making that decision on, you know, do I invest in the higher, you know, in the, in the traditional asset versus affordable housing as my first opportunity fund investment, what's it going to take as far as de-risking that capital and as far as return to get them to move to, um, to those more meaningful and impactful assets and activities. And so that sort of feedback I'm looking for all the time, especially as we build out this marketplace and understand what sort of products we're structuring and creating. Um, and we are, we will be creating funds. And so if folks are interested in the work we're doing at Enterprise, please feel free to contact me because we will be looking for investors. Great. Actually, that, that's something that we should do as a community and get back to, to you on, Rachel. I think that's a good idea. I, I will reach out to our, to our membership and see if we can get any very concrete views on what that risk return appetite is and, uh, and share that with you. And uh, Frank, I don't know if, uh, if you all from, uh, from your own communities have seen already some emerging sort of consensus on, uh, on, on risk appetite or investment appetite in general. Uh, this is a big question. Rachel talked about um, the known concessionary investors like foundations and some high net worth individuals who already have an appetite for CDFI exposure, affordable housing exposure. And I think the big question is the non-impact investors, excuse me, <coughs> um, coming into the field and will that have a distorting effect? Excuse me, one second. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just getting over the flu. I thought I'd make it through without coughing. Um, pardon me. Uh, so for us, the big question is, 
how do we communicate with and influence uh, wealth advisors who uh, will likely be sh or always shopping for uh, tax benefits and solving tax timing issues, and how w could we present uh, opportunity funds um, as not only a strong kind of risk return profile, but also high impact? Like, could this be actually a gateway for new capital to enter the impact investing field enticed by the benefits um, of the program, but, you know, uh, kind of creating a, an entry point uh, for engagement? Yeah. And we haven't even scratched that uh, question that we've been dealing with on, you know, the the, the role of uh, um, of impact investors in pursuing or not pursuing tax avoidance uh, and uh, that, that has been popping up here and there, but it's a lot more metaphysical perhaps than uh, than what we can handle today. But just interesting to see uh, how much the, the years per cap when there is a, a tax deferral coming online in this uh, in this context, uh, I'm mindful that we are up on time, but I'm happy to do another couple of moments just to, uh, if you don't mind, um, just to throw out a couple of the questions that have been uh, uh, coming in, and to the extent that we can address them, great, otherwise we can flag them for a later conversation. Uh, one is on uh, an existing investor in, uh, uh, in an opportunity zone that is wondering about the effect that this has on redeployment of capital, right? Should you redeploy or should you wait until the opportunity zone program is finalized to, to go ahead? Interesting kind of timing issue there, yeah, on uh, um, for folks that are already invested and might be having some uh, some capital gains coming on the line right now. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's John mentioned earlier that you have 180 days from um, kind of disposition to deploy the capital gains into an opportunity fund. The issue is there aren't opportunity funds yet. The the yeah. most of the zones haven't been designated. Um, the uh, the funds need to be certified, and so I think it's a little bit too early unless uh, John and Rachel think otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just we didn't lay out explicitly what the timeline that we have uh, certainty on is, which is that so the first deadline to either submit for governors to submit or ask for an extension was March 21st. If they did ask for the extension, then they have through April, April 20th. From the time that they submit, Treasury has another 30 days with the possibility of their own 30-day extension uh, to, uh, to approve the governor's nominations. And this won't be a rigorous test. They're going to go through at the CDFI fund and look, did you submit only census tracts that were eligible? And did you stay within your limit on number of census tracts to nominate? So what that all puts us into is that we'll have finalized opportunity zones in all 50 states and every territory by June 18th at the latest. Uh, I mentioned fund certification that we might be getting a revenue procedure in the coming months or weeks. Uh, that would give you something to go on. It won't be, have the force of a finalized regulation, but they don't like to deviate from revenue procedures once they put those out there. And so you would know a little bit about how to certify an opportunity fund and what sort of tests you're going to have to meet. Uh, and then, you know, we're actually looking at the investment pools and so some of this question about what is active business that I was talking about earlier. What is substantially all of your tangible property? What is substantially all or a substantial portion of your intangible property? Those kinds of implementation questions 
we'll be looking at maybe the end of the year, maybe leading into next year uh, for Treasury to start to address them. There's a lot of administration pressure for Treasury to act quickly. But then again, this week, we also see that now OMB might have a say in writing tax regulation for the first time. And so that could either speed it up with more folks working on finalizing regulations, or it could slow it down with a second regulator with their sort of hand on the steering wheel. So hard to say when we'll have the final timeline on, on what actually is an investable opportunity, but um, that's what we know right now. Great. And one last super quick question, then uh, the last few that there are we can try to sort out and send in the, in the follow-up um, is from Delilah on the latest census design and how that might impact the opportunity zones that are being designated. So could the, uh, the zone status be challenged or is it locked in under the current census? Mm -hmm. Rachel, you want to take it? Um, I, so, you know, I, this is a pretty straightforward process. Treasury released initial guidance around census tract eligibility that was updated uh, in late February and then again in early March. And so um, basically the set of census tracts that governors have to work with right now um, is what Treasury is considering to be eligible. So I do not foresee um, there being any challenge and this will not be a subjective analysis on the behalf of Treasury when they uh, go through and approve uh, the census tracts that are nominated by the governors. This is basically going to be a line by line. Um, is the census tract number you nominated uh, an eligible census tract? If it is, then it's approved. If not, then, then it's sent back to the state. So um, it, it, states were not asked to substantiate the reasons they chose census tracts. But John, um, our understanding is that if it's an opportunity zone, it's an opportunity zone for the life of the fund, right? They're not going to do a switcheroo on opportunity zones once designated? Well, um, I think that's a little bit of a question. It's once it's a zone, it's a zone for 10 years. Uh, yeah, no, that's what I meant. Yeah, so, uh, through the end of the tax year, so it'll be, it'll be approved this year, so it'll be through the end of, uh, what year is it, 2028. Um, whether there will be some accommodation for folks who came in on year three of a fund uh, to be able to keep going in their investments through 2031. That's a question down the road. There might be a regulatory fix. There might be a technical correction, legislative fix. And that's yeah, that during that time. Yeah. And that's really interesting. One less. Oh, so, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say the really interesting question that's coming up for states is. For, um, for areas where they have economic development initiatives happening right now that don't have a population um, where it could really use the capital, but since they don't have a population, it's not a census tract and therefore it could not be an eligible opportunity zone, whether in future years that would be a census tract and they could opt in to have that be an opportunity zone in future years or whether, uh, there could be a special uh, waiver for disaster recovery. So something we saw happen in Puerto Rico where all uh, eligible census tracts uh, back in February were uh, waived in to become opportunities in. So you might see something similar like that, like a waiver 
uh, around disaster recovery areas. And picking up on what John said about uh, an opportunity zone being an opportunity zone for those 10 years, uh, we didn't get around to the, uh, to the issue of uh, evergreen funds and the opportunity for some sort of like hold cost structures in this that uh, maybe as you all uh, discover more over time, we'll be able to tackle that. But I don't want to... Uh, uh, overstep your patience and kindness in being on this uh, conversation with us. So um, I've put up here the contact information for you, and I'll be happy to share the deck with those that uh, that want it. Uh, with respect to the work of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance with uh, with Fran and John, feel free to contact uh, John. He's at jcochrane at boardfoundation.org. Um, for Rachel uh, at Enterprise Community Partners, uh, R. Riley at enterprisecommunity.org, and we will share, um, again, those, uh, those contacts with you. If you're interested in the work of the Transform Finance Investor Network, please uh, get in touch with Kurt. Um, as always, Kurt at transformfinance.org. And um, last word of thank you to all of you for joining us, to Fran, John, and Rachel for the amazing work that you've been doing and uh, for the time that you took in prepping and coming on the call with us. I found it extremely enlightening. So thank you and good luck with all the work as this takes shape. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. We'll be in touch. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye -bye.